Hey, Magic Lantern listeners. There is no opening scene today, as this is a special episode, which is our annual recap of our Coloween viewing schedule. Pop quiz for you right now. Are you more filled with horror or tacos? Right this second? Yes, right this very second. Tacos, queso, and a fun-sized Milky Way. We know how to do Halloween right on this show. In my case, the tacos and the horror are quickly becoming indistinguishable. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. We are at episode 89 this time, and this is our third annual review of what we watched for our 31 Days of Horror in October this year. There will likely be a minor spoiler or two for the older titles, but we do cover two new releases this year, and the discussion of those will be spoiler-free. Why don't you set the stage for us? What was our theme this year? Like a lot of people, I'm assuming you as well, I'm often aware of the holes in my film education. And so I got inspired by still having so many big and small horror titles of note left to watch. So why not try to get to a whole bunch of them this month? So we each picked titles that we had never seen before. That means I could get to some great directors and writers like Dario Argento and David Lynch, and some that I'd never really heard of and weren't familiar with their work, like Larry Cohen and Lucio Fulci. We also did something that is always a highlight for me. We got to go around the world for our choices. Well, why don't we get right to it? You started us off. Day one belongs to you. What did you choose to kick off the month? We kicked this whole thing off with opera from 1987, directed by Dario Argento, with Christina Marsalak, Urbano Barberini, and Ian Charlson. A young soprano is involved in a series of murders being committed inside an opera house during a production of Macbeth. Now, I know you've done a lot of theater stuff, but do you think the Macbeth superstition extends to the world of opera as well? Is that a legit thing, do you think? I don't know any opera performers. I can only speak to how prevalent it really is in the theater world, at least it was in my experience. I worked on one light opera and it didn't come up. Do you mean ghost light opera? No, just a really kind of amateurish one, involving things like a character saying, and let's have a bar carol, and everybody starts laughing. That's super inside, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, this was a really fun way to kick off, especially with Jalo. It's got some very visually disturbing skin-crawling kill methods. The needles to keep the eyes open, especially. I know it has the nicest pair of scissors I've ever seen used to pry someone's mouth open. So I'm also going to do this for Deep Red. I'm going to rewrite this ending. Because I assumed all along that Betty was the killer and she was just having manifesting psychotic breaks. So I would have loved it if it had ended with her accepting her nature and going off with the ostensible real killer. But anyway, that's a minor quibble. This did set up the ongoing theme that we're going to see of people making terrible choices. I like this one as an opener to... The backdrop of opera, I feel like, really lends itself to amplified drama that is a great framework to hang horror on. 
and that goes all the way back to the beginnings of the genre with the Phantom of the Opera. Visually, I really enjoy it. There's a lot of POV in this one, including that of ravens. It made me wonder, are defensive wounds the worst to see happen when someone is holding their hands up and their hands are getting hacked at? That's terrible. Uh, We're going to see some pretty terrible things as this (laughs) month goes on. The one drawback, the band No Escape, they are no goblin, as far as Argento soundtracks go. I feel like this is toned down Argento. Do you feel like it's better in terms of accessibility than some of the more out there stuff? I don't know about more or less accessible. It definitely feels different because it's coming from the later 80s, not what I'm used to. I know what you mean. I don't rank this as high as some others, but as far as an entry point for some people, eh, I guess it's got enough of the Argento hallmarks in it. Good for completion's sake, I guess. Well, my first choice was a film called Hotel from 2004, directed by Jessica Hausner and starring Franziska Weiss. And it's about a young woman who takes a position at a hotel on the edge of a forest deep in the Austrian Alps that discovers that the girl that she replaced vanished without a trace. This one was more of an extended mood piece than a straight horror film, I would say. To call this one minimalist is probably a massive understatement. Ultra-minimalist is probably more like it. I'm typically a fan of this approach, and there are definitely things that I liked about this. There is really great creepy sound design. I like the feeling of isolation. The brief incorporation of a folk horror element, especially the implication that the older pagan forces are reasserting themselves as a counter to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Ultimately, though, I feel like this was just a little too slight, though. How did you feel about it? I'm with you, and I think you even fleshed it out a little bit more than was there. I think I ultimately wanted a bit more, some more story. But for a film that is about atmosphere and not scares, it definitely succeeds. And it was a nice counterpoint to opera. I'm glad we're exploring completely different facets of horror as we go. Yes, it is definitely one that is Almost certainly better if you are on its wavelength whenever you decide to put it on. But even then, it's not quite enough to hang a feature on. It would be much more effective as a well-edited and potent short film, I thought. Next, we came to Kuroneko from 1968, directed by Kanito Shindo, with Kichiman Nakamura, Nobuko Otowa, and Kiwako Taichi. It's an adaptation of a supernatural folk tale about the spirits of a woman and her daughter-in-law seeking revenge after losing their lives in a brutal incident. It's beautiful. It's haunting. Now, what does it say about me that I take pleasure in this revenge violence? I don't think it says much. Those samurai had it coming. The unease is palpable from the first frame when they all come oozing out of the forest like a sickness. They deserve what they get in the end. And there are just so many of them. Another big highlight here are the wonderful special effects, feeling like a dreamscape, especially the way the backgrounds move. And I like that the title itself idiomatically refers to a mystery that is difficult to unravel. It really is one of the greatest classic Japanese ghost stories. It's great atmosphere. It's very theatrical, beautiful, high-contrast photography. And I have a few big takeaways from it. One, don't hang around Rajamon Gate. Two, as long as I don't have to mess with it in my yard, I love bamboo. It's beautiful. 
<laughs> and three, apparently ghostliness is sexually transmitted. <laughs> the third act, it really is centered on a lover's reunion. So it's very erotic until it switches focus to this mother, no pun intended. Well, yes, definitely pun intended of a finale. This final showdown is incredible. This is one that I think every lover of world cinema has to see at some point. And speaking of world cinema, we go to Poland for our next entry, and that is Demon from 2015, directed by Marcin Wrona and starring Itay Tehran and Agnieszka Zulewska. This one is about a bridegroom who is possessed by an unquiet spirit in the midst of his own wedding ceremony. This is the mood piece I think I had hoped for with Hotel. This one has a little more meat on its bones. I was wary at first, though. Typically, 13 production company logos before the movie starts is a very bad sign. But I ended up liking this very much. It's a pretty interesting twist on the Jewish legend of the Dybbuk, a malicious spirit believed to be the dislocated soul of a dead person. And it is dread throughout. The movie makes you acutely aware that Shrieks of joy are indistinguishable from shrieks of despair because of this wedding celebration. And this extra level of irony that I found in this piece of dialogue about one little cloud hanging over the proceedings, it's extremely applicable in this case because one, it's an understatement of what awaits the groom in the movie, but two, there is also the matter of the director somewhat notoriously committing suicide while making the festival rounds with this. I do like this couple a lot, too. These actors have really great chemistry, and this reminds me precisely why we did not have a wedding. No guest list guarantees that no Dybbuks are invited. And also, don't get married on the top of an Indian burial ground. And if this world's longest wedding reception is any indication, I really understand why you don't want to go to weddings in general. I really liked this. This was great. The mix of the old and new in both the story and the production. And as you said, there's a lot to hang on this. Nothing short of a denial of the present and an erasure of the past. There are a ton of wonderful subversive moments, like when the doctor starts laughing as the priest is trying to pray. It is very rich and complex for a possession story. You can't have your party and then sleep off history, it's saying. The whole country is built on corpses. Some nice touches along the way. I really enjoyed his physicality when he was portraying the spirit controlling his body. And I love this image near the end of one of the revelers trying to delicately reassemble a broken glass. Another high recommendation for me. I would say this one is definitely more ambitious than your average horror film. God and religion are coincidentally a huge focus of my next choice, and that is God Told Me To from 1976. Written and directed by Larry Cohen, with Tony LoBianco, Deborah Raffin, Sandy Dennis, and Richard Lynch. It's about a series of mass killings in New York City, where each killer utters the refrain of God Told Me To. Now, in spite of Roger Ebert's scathing review of this from the time, I found this to be incredibly compelling and not fractured. I think it has a lot to say. It's creepy and terrifying, and it's really fascinating to explore the motives of God and the people who believe in God. 
Larry Cohen I wasn't particularly familiar with. He had gotten his start in the studio TV system, wrote a ton of stuff, and bestseller was the only thing I knew of his. I don't think I rate this one quite as highly as you, but maybe close. This opening, it evokes a very specific image for those of us either interested in true crime, that grew up with this story, or are just from this part of the country, and that is Charles Whitman shooting all those people from the tower at the University of Texas. In that way, this movie feels disturbingly prescient in the way that it anticipated the proliferation of violence in the public square. High points? It's grubby and insane in a very specific late 70s New York City kind of way. And there's a fantastic nod to the Martin Balsam staircase scene in Psycho. You'll see it right away when you watch this. And the guy who calmly, almost happily, describes how he shot his family is bone-chilling. Especially the part about tricking his youngest son into coming out of hiding, which has direct echoes in an actual crime in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, not too many years ago. I love Sandy Dennis. It's always a huge plus to see her in anything. But I think this loses its way a little bit after it starts out really strong, which is too bad because, like you say, the subject matter is rife with possibilities. The idea of killing for God and killing God himself is something that I think people will never stop wrestling with. That Is God Dead Time magazine cover was almost a decade before this and more than 50 years ago now, and people still talk about that issue. It's just a shame that this could not capitalize on its full potential, I feel like. Next, we have your first choice in our series of Halloween screenings this year. What did you pick to kick that off? Separately for these movie nights, we decided on a theme of witches. So my first choice was Suspiria from 1977, directed by Dario Argento, with Jessica Harper, Alita Valley, and Joan Bennett. We covered Suspiria back in our regular episode 15, so go on back to get our thoughts on Suspiria. But if you don't know already, it's the story of a young American woman who comes to Germany to study at an illustrious dance academy and discovers sinister goings-on. This one is incredibly fun to watch with an audience with that score turned up super loud. Why did you want to kick things off with this one? I felt like a lot of people, at least in our core group who like to come to our movie nights, had not yet seen Suspiria. So what better movie to kick off the witch theme than the witchiest movie of all? I know you wanted to show Hocus Pocus to kick (laughs) this off, but I picked Suspiria. I've still never seen Hocus Pocus, for clarity's sake. Me either. My next choice is kind of a first for us. This is the first time we're talking about a cycle of films. And we are taking on the recently released Arrow video set of the Bloodthirsty Trilogy. The first film of which is The Vampire Doll from 1970, directed by Michio Yamamoto and starring Mayo Matsuo, Akira Nakao, Asuo Nakamura, Yukiko Kobayashi, Yoko Minakaze, and Jun Usami. It's about a woman and her friend that travel to the country to find her brother after he disappeared visiting his fiancée. I quite enjoyed this. It starts appropriately enough on a dark and stormy night, In fact, everything about it is fairly derivative in that way, but I don't mean that as a negative. It takes a lot of standard vampire tropes, especially those from the Hammer Films stable, and it stitches them together in a really fun and entertaining Saturday afternoon matinee kind of way, but with a bit of a twist at the end. It's actually pretty interesting to see these 
Western vampire cliches cobbled together and then played out against a distinctly Japanese backdrop. It won't win any prizes for innovation, but if you're looking for something to slot into your annual vampire rotation for a little variety, these are a pretty good time. I think there was an observation in one of the DVD featurettes that even the lowliest Toho production still looks amazing, and it does. This looks wonderful. I also like the references to the film Psycho, and that moment when we see how calm the mother is with her small smile. I'm going to wait till we get to the end of all three of these to see how you rank them. I'm curious if they're the same as mine. Next, we watched Get Out from 2017, directed by Jordan Peele, and we just covered that at length in our regular episode 87, so please check that out. Well, our next choice falls into your slot as if you chose it, but I think that's not exactly fair because that's not really how it happened, but this one belongs in an Erica slot, so take it away. You rotter, that's all I have to say. We saw The Nun from 2018, directed by Corin Hardy, with Damien Bichir, Thaisa Farmiga, and Jonas Bloquet. A priest with a haunted past and a novice on the threshold of her final vows are sent to investigate the death of a young nun in Romania. Okay, this was terrible. <laughs> First off, how can you expect to have any credibility when you have a character named Frenchie? Why is there an insistence on things being in English when this is supposed to be in Romania? Why are we perpetuating the mythos around the Warrens? There's no attempt at any sort of world building. I don't know how long the nuns had been gone. And also, let's be honest, here at least, Thaisa Farmiga is not great. Yeah, since this is a new title, we'll try not to be too spoilery about this, so without going into too much detail, I will just say bollocks. This is the analogy that I will make. You know the four corners, where if you stand with your feet just right, you can be in Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah simultaneously. This movie is that, except switch out those states for Van Helsing, The Conjuring, The Da Vinci Code, and A Wet Bag of Garbage. <laughs> Could we have just gone to the Four Corners instead of seeing this movie? Thaisa Farmiga is obviously supposed to remind us of her sister Vera, who is in all of those other Warren-based films. But all I could think of was that she made this feel like The Adventures of Anne Frank. These accents are bananas. And the worst part is, I don't think any of them were fake. I think they're their actual accents. The score is awful. And in one particularly pivotal scene from the music, I couldn't tell if she was taking her holy vows or joining the Avengers. The big problem, I think, well, there are tons of problems, but one of the problems is that we've seen it all before. And where that works in the case of the vampire doll, it didn't work here. So my big takeaways, no sexy nuns, so why did you even bother? And Marilyn Manson is pissed. Plus, it's a huge waste of a great filming location, the real Castle Dracula. <laughs> well, let's stop talking about something crappy and talk about something good. Okay. <laughs> and that is my next choice, Poison for the Fairies from 1984, a Mexican horror film written and directed by Carlos Enrique Taboada, the filmmaker who is also responsible for one of our titles from last year, Even the Wind is Afraid. 
This stars Ana Patricia Rojo and Elsa Maria Gutierrez and is about a 10-year-old who convinces the new girl at school that she is a witch and their games begin to grow gradually more dangerous until finally they become deadly. I really liked this one. It belongs right up there with other schoolgirl packs gone out of control like Alucarda and Don't Deliver Us From Evil. This one is really brilliant at conveying the power of a child's imagination. And one clever way that it does that is that it truly makes them the center of this universe. The camera never raises above their height and you practically never see an adult face. You see adult bodies from the back, from the waist down. They're there. They just don't command the spotlight. This is all about the insular world these girls build. When this film came out, I was roughly the same age as the main characters, and I think their behavior tracks really well. I like that we don't know for sure what we're looking at. A sociopath, a psychopath, a schizophrenic, or a simple liar. There's really no positive choice here. You're leaving one out. A witch. That's true. Even with that, the ending is startling, especially when you examine the motivations of each of these girls. I say kudos to Tabuata for making Veronica as brazen a sociopath as I have ever seen on screen. She's the kind of evil that you study in textbooks. One big highlight for me in this was a sort of intangible feeling, that part of childhood best summed up by that feeling of being too scared to get out of your bed because of what you imagine the sounds down the hall to be. This captures that vibe exceedingly well, and it is also surprisingly committed to that very grim ending. I really like this. I'm probably going to say that about 10 or 12 times this episode. This month was much better than last year when we encountered a few duds. Hold that thought when we get to my <laughs> next choice. And that was The Beyond from 1981, directed by Lucio Fulci, with Catriona McCall and David Warbeck. A woman inherits a hotel in rural Louisiana that was once the site of a horrific murder and may be a gateway to hell. It was the second film in Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy, and I haven't seen either of the two titles, City of the Living Dead and The House by the Cemetery. Well, we've got them both, so after seeing this, are you going to rush right over and grab those off the shelf? No. <laughs> Though, to be fair, yes, I will definitely give those others a chance. I just didn't really enjoy this. Everyone seems to have a massive capacity to either not see reality or just be very, very stupid. It's also quite gross, which is not something I generally enjoy. There are horribly mangled bodies everywhere. Maybe you better steer clear of the other Fulchies in that case. Good to know. The only other Fulchie I think I've seen is Lizard in a Woman's Skin. But anyway, for these characters, how many signs do you need pointing you to, yes, this is a gateway to hell? It's also got a very bizarre synth score that feels like it's out of a film that probably starred Michael Beck. Well, I think I like this one a little bit more than you, just because it is cuckoo nutso and that Lucio Fulci does not care what you think. It's shot in Louisiana with a cast that is obviously 98% Italian. I'm a from Orleans, a parish. <laughs> I think they shot all the scenes and then just pulled them from a hopper in random order. And like with most Fulci, the gore gags are the real strong suit, and a number of eyeballs get removed in pretty spectacular fashion. 
like you, I think I am left with a number of questions. I lost track of the times that we turned to each other and said, is that character supposed to be fill in the blank? Almost to the point of Mad Libs, that blank could be that person's wife, husband, plumber, handyman, Italian, French, Russo-Finnish, whatever. It's nationalities, it's relationships, it's motivations. You could put anything in that blank. Blind, who knows. Why are there so many containers of incredibly caustic acid just sitting around? Is one of these tarantulas running an electric pepper mill to make that grinding noise? What's the end game here? The dead will walk the earth, sure, but what do they do with their time once they've popped everybody's eyeballs out? I did really love one moment in particular when our lead character tells someone, you have carte blanche, but you don't have a blank check, okay? <laughs> That's pretty great. In short, we just got beyonded. <laughs> did I tell you I want to remake this with Beyonce and call it the Beyonce? TM, TM, TM. Very, 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 very good. I don't want to be giving away a million dollar idea for free right there. Remind me to mail this podcast to myself and then keep it sealed. Okay, next we have one of mine, and that is The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here from 1972, directed by Andy Milligan and starring Hope Stansberry, Jackie Scarvellis, and Noel Collins. The tagline says that man-eating rodents are the only playthings for a 19th century family who have a unique problem with the full moon. That makes it sound a bit more grand and more scary and more anything, actually, than it truly is. It's kind of an odd one. It's a bit of a movie out of time. It was made in the early 70s and shot on 16mm by Andy Milligan, who's more of an experimental schlockmeister than anything else. Or I should say, he usually is. This is a very old-fashioned gothic melodrama. Think Dark Shadows. It's more Dragonwick than Bloodfeast. If Gainsborough Studios had made this in 1942 instead of Milligan in 1972, it might actually be somewhat well-regarded, or even if Roger Corman had done it with Vincent Price. I think this was a case of almost. The production almost got there. The scene music was almost correct. The camera placement was almost right. They almost had a functioning microphone. I developed kind of a soft spot for this one. The acting isn't bad. It just often feels rushed, like the actors were sprinting through their lines. Well, Milligan does have a lot of legitimate ties to the experimental theater community, so he didn't really have a shortage of resources or at least talented people who are probably willing to throw in on this for nothing. His story is actually much more of an interesting story than we have time to get into here, but fans of trash cinema should look into his work if they don't know it already. This is an okay film as a starting point for him. It's better than it has any right to be, but it's not really representative of the rest of his filmography. And the next choice was also mine. This was my first choice for our movie screening series, and I picked Haxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages from 1922, directed by Benjamin Christensen, and starring Astrid Holm, Oscar Striebolt, and Christensen himself as the devil. It's a hybrid of documentary and fictionalized vignettes based on Christensen's study of the Malleus Maleficarum, a guide for inquisitors and witch hunters from the 15th century. For our screening purposes, we watched the version with the William S. Burroughs narration for an extra level of creepiness. 
we had a good crowd for movie night for this, and I was a little bit surprised, thinking, uh, a 1922 film might be a bit of a hard sell, and everyone was thoroughly entertained by this. It was great fun. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. One of the reasons we do the movie nights is to show people stuff that they may have never come across before, always in hopes that it will feel like a great discovery for them, and they will later remember, oh, remember that night that we went to Cole and Erica's and saw Haxon? That was a really cool film. And I think we pulled it off with that choice. And the next one was one of yours. What is next? We're about to have some dueling maniacs up in here. I chose Maniac from 1980, directed by William Lustig, with Joe Spinell and Caroline Monroe. Joe Spinell also co-wrote the film. He plays a serial killer who is murdering and scalping young women in New York City. I also really love this, too. It ended up being much better than I think I feared it was going to be. There's intention and purpose and style and voice. It's well-written, acted, and directed. It certainly captures what feels like the grubbiest places on Earth, New York and New Jersey in the late 70s and early 80s. I'm really glad you chose this one because this is one that sneaks up on me every time. I forget in between viewings how much I like it, and that rests primarily on the sweaty shoulders of Joe Spinell. He belongs on the Mount Rushmore of creeps. He is a very good, very underrated actor. His resume has really impressive credits on it. The Godfather, a lot of work with William Friedkin, but he also made some of the most impressive grubby exploitation stuff around. This, The Undertaker, for example... The most impressive thing he does here, I think, is to make his character, Frank, a whole and sometimes even sympathetic person. He's not your average monster. He's charming. And this predates the time before the general public had a larger understanding of serial killers and how they lived and went under the radar. As an example, Henry, portrait of a serial killer, would come six years later, and the culture had moved light years beyond where Maniac finds us by that time. Henry made me believe that there were probably a hundred guys out there like that, whereas Maniac makes me believe that there were a hundred thousand guys out there like that. And that's all thanks to Spinell. I can imagine in 1980 in New York, there was a guy like this in every apartment building, in every borough in the city. And I do really like that time capsule aspect of it too. They shot a lot of this on the street with no permits. And so you get a real sense of the city in between Spinell's moaning, sighing, and mewling, or underneath it. Don't underestimate this one. This is an all-time exploitation classic. Which I can't, unfortunately, say about my choice, this pair of bookends. Day 15, the halfway point, I chose Maniac, the remake from 2012, directed by Frank Calhoun and starring Elijah Wood and Nora Arnazader. You can tell they have affection for Bill Lustig's original, and it's generally the same plot of a disturbed young man with severe mommy issues that goes over the brink into scalping and murder. I had high hopes, but this one really didn't approach the original, I thought, for a number of reasons. The setting is Los Angeles instead of New York, which means I already lean a lot more in favor of everyone getting killed. This location does work in one regard. It's very easy to believe in the anonymity of both killer and victim in this city in a way that you couldn't in New York. New York feels more like neighborhoods, families, people that might notice if you go missing. 
Los Angeles definitely does not have that feeling. The other major failing I think of this is that Frank is too overwrought. The genius of the original was Spinell's sensitivity and quietness. You felt the danger most when he went from a 2 to a 10. Elijah Wood's character is wound so tight that it seems like he's always on a 9.4, on the verge of hysterics constantly. I said in the original that Spinell made me feel like there were 100,000 guys like this out there. This one makes me feel like there is only one. Some of that may be the result of the subjective point of view that it implements throughout the entire movie. Those technical tricks and gimmicks and the gore are both more prevalent and simultaneously less effective than in the original. It may have too much style. Grubbiness is integral to this story and is not best served in a Nicholas Winding Refn knockoff. I'm also not a fan of the main object of his affections not surviving either. That character's escape was also integral to the original being his ultimate failure. It's not without things that I like. Those things are, there are a lot of fun Easter eggs in it, with nods to the original film in a lot of fun ways, and to other things like the Silence of the Lambs. On a couple of occasions, it gives you a real sense of the cruel randomness with which these things occur in real life. You've crossed paths with your killer, and you don't know it, but he certainly does. The thing I like best about all this, though, is that Elijah Wood took all that Frodo money and really sunk his teeth for years into being a creep. He never has to work another day in his life, and these twitchy genre pieces full of weirdos are what it seems like all he did and all he spent his money on either performing in or producing for years. So good on him. I ended up liking it a lot more than you did. Possibly that's because the first Maniac was completely new to me, so I didn't have that same sense of history. I liked some of the elements that I feel like this film gets right in the way that it has developed its character in its own way. It was a window into a person I don't see often, who seems to be living with constant pain, both physical and mental. I look at the difference in the time period, and in this newer film, we do have the introduction of the online world, and it just shows us that we are still essentially trusting, and we still make stupid choices. Should we just be more afraid all the time? I like the use of the older woman character in this as well. It feels like it makes a big statement. I do miss that sense from Maniac 1980 of feeling terror in real time. Those kills take a very long time and it's excruciating. I also, even just as an exercise, like thinking about the quote-unquote love interest's purposes from the first and the second which we don't have to get into here. It's just something interesting to explore. If we ever get to talk to Elijah Wood, I'd really like to ask him about the process in making this film. Did the intense concentration that was required because of how it was filmed hurt or help his acting performance? Okay, we're just past the halfway point. What do you have next? This is one of many on the list where I wonder, why did it take me so long to get to this? And that is Eraserhead from 1977, written, produced, and directed by David Lynch, with Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, Gene Bates, Judith Anna Roberts, Laurel Neer, and Jack Fisk. A young man is left to care for his grossly deformed child in a desolate industrial landscape. Now you've chosen a couple of things on your list that 
I don't think people would traditionally slot into the horror genre. Did you end up considering this one horror? Was it your dread and anticipation that initially inclined you to classify it that way? I think there's something to be said for that. It could also be that I was combing through lists that might have been a little bit more freewheeling. I would certainly consider it body horror, though, at least for me. But regardless, it was a pleasure to be back in the mind of David Lynch, something in it is a very small list that I hadn't seen of his. Going back to your horror question, I wonder if it made a difference to me that this was in black and white? It somehow feels a bit less grotesque that way? Or maybe David Lynch just exists outside of that boundary? This is something that I'm probably going to say a good half a dozen times as well. I am really glad that you picked this one. Every time I watch this, I truly am reminded that this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I feel like this is a pure a statement, a declaration of intent, as any director ever made coming right out of the gate. And it scratches my every itch. The grinding, droning sound design is incredible. That high contrast photography is beautiful. And I think the black and white actually contributes to the horror of it because there's more mystery, there's less definition. I think color would wipe away some of the, did I see what I thought I saw? Aspect of the black and white photography. I don't even know if I have all the right adjectives for the environment that this establishes. Milky? <laughs> Blasted? Ferris? The full list of these would be long and bizarre. Peaty? Bulbous? I could go on. I also really appreciate the effect that this has on people that they are unable to deal with or articulate. I went to see this in the theater not too long ago. And I have never seen such a restless audience. They couldn't keep still in their seats. ton of people kept going in and out of the auditorium. They were supremely uncomfortable. It was glorious. Oddly, I recall that viewing, especially oddly for somebody like me, I felt like it was very restive. Maybe I just wouldn't let you turn the sound up loud enough. Well, we're going to turn the sound all the way down. Well, technically that's not true because there is a score, but... My next choice is a silent film from 1928, and that is an adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher, directed by Jean Epstein, with Louis Bunuel as his co-adapter and assistant director, and starring Jean Dubucourt, Marguerite Gantz, and Charles Lamy. It is based on the Edgar Allan Poe story of the same name, with a significant departure or two. Our narrator in the film goes to the country house of the Usher family, and discovers that his friend has grown demented and obsessed with the death and has prematurely entombed his wife. Once again, I loved this, and this is another one like Eraserhead that I think isn't quite fully summed up with horror. I think of it as more of a phantasmagoria. It's more akin to something like Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast as it is anything else for me. The sets in this are really astounding, and I love the miniatures. I have a real soft spot for those like we see in the opening of Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, for instance. Their artificiality actually strikes me as kind of charming. Debucor is magnetic in this. He communicates so much despair and mania and melancholy by underplaying. Pretty much the polar opposite of the exaggerated style that you often think of when you think of silent films. Epstein's camera is incredibly agile. I don't know if 1928 audiences were fully grasping the artistry that's on display here. The whole thing feels like it's made with a poet's eye rather than a filmmaker. 
Did you look at my notes? Because I also wrote down magnetic. It's almost as if you think that his eyes are coming through the TV and staring directly into you. It is a visual masterpiece. Amazing technique and flourishes for its or any production. This was my first Epstein, even though he's directed more than 30 films. I just like to think back to that lovely memory of going to see a film in the Jean Epstein Theater at the Cinémathèque Française. The other thing that stands out about this for me is something that we frequently encounter when we do a project like this, the juxtaposition of things. This really made for interesting viewing back-to-back with Eraserhead, the odd family dynamics, the decay, the surreal alienation. The score also contributes a great deal to the atmosphere. It adds a ton of tension and dissonance in all the right places. This one is a must for silent film fans especially. We're going to just toss all that aside to get to Tenebrae from 1982, written and directed by Dario Argento again, with Anthony Franciosa, John Saxon, and Daria Nicolodi. It's our first John Saxon sighting this year. We were definitely missing him. This film is about an American author who, in Rome while promoting his latest murder mystery novel, becomes embroiled in the search for a serial killer who may have been inspired to kill by his novel. Now, I started with Dario Argento in Suspiria. That had been the only one I had seen for a long time, up until this month, really. So because of those gaps, I was surprised to see Daria Nicolodi as an actor. I was used to her in that co-writing credit on Suspiria. So this is another highlight when we do things like this, seeing all these different connections and people in different ways. For example, Tony Franciosa. He is a really gentle performer, very natural, and he seems like a perfect fit here. Overall, as I was watching, I felt like there were just a glut of characters and motives, but that didn't feel like it was a con when they were all being picked off every single one. That's in part based on the word tenebrae, Latin for darkness. It's a religious ceremony that is characterized by the gradual extinguishing of candles and by a loud noise that takes place in total darkness near the end of the service. I think my absolute favorite part was that extended dog chase sequence with the young girl who was the landlord's daughter. Dario Argento was inspired in part to write this because he was contacted by an obsessed fan who started out talking about how much Suspiria had influenced him, and that became more and more menacing as he began to say that he was going to harm Dario Argento because the director had ruined his life. Well, we are definitely back into our traditional giallo territory after our left turn into the world of Suspiria. One thing I like about this is how that first kill reminds me that there are still some actions that shock me. The shoving of the pages of the book into her mouth feel like such a violation. It reminded me of a similar feeling that I had not long ago when I was watching The Black Coat's Daughter. There's a moment in that when the killer pulls an already dead body up off the floor by its hair. The careless handling of a corpse feels like a violation in a similar way. So good news, I'm not completely desensitized to everything. This may be my favorite Argento script of all, on paper. 
There are a number of clever treatments of the idea of doubles and sexual depravity, and there are a couple of really great images like that straight razor tapping the light bulb. It's not perfect. There is that moment where Jane unnecessarily makes the subtext text when she says, it's like there are two people in me. And I am always wary when an artist uses their work to directly respond to critics, which is most certainly what he was doing here. But overall, I really enjoy this one for its more ambitious themes and its overt eroticism. Next, we have another of my ongoing series, and that is the second installment in the Bloodthirsty trilogy, Lake of Dracula from 1971. This is also directed by Michio Yamamoto, and it stars Mori Kishida, Midori Fujita, and Osahide Takahashi. It's about a vampire with golden eyes that attacks an artist and her doctor boyfriend. Like I said, it is the second entry in this trilogy, which is Japan's answer to the Hammer Vampires. I think this was my favorite of the three when it all comes down to it. It has a beautiful opening shot on the beach, and the cold open of this is everything you want out of an early 70s vampire film. I'll say it again, you won't find anything groundbreaking. They are running the standard vampire playbook, but they execute it well. Once again, it has that high Toho production value, and the big plus for me this time is that we get our Japanese Christopher Lee analog that we didn't get in the first installment, and he is appropriately powerful and menacing and fashion-forward with that sweet scarf instead of a cape. It has day-for-night shooting that I actually don't mind for once because it gives the feeling of this weirdly suspended world in a perpetual twilight. And there's a super cool fight scene that takes place inside of a small car that is really inventively choreographed. The ending also has some of that powerhouse energy similar to Hammer's Horror of Dracula, where our vampire bursts memorably through a bit of stained glass. I agree with everything that you've said, and it was still my least favorite. Really? Yes. I think that was mostly because it had just less story to it. And the heroine, this is the number one, the heroine was hysterical and timid, but it did have a great line. Many people believe in God. Why don't they believe in the devil? Well, you'll have to give me your full rankings once we get to the third and final installment here. Will do. Next up, I had our movie night selection, and I chose Black Sunday from 1960, directed by Mario Bava, with Barbara Steele, John Richardson, and Andrea Cecchi. A vengeful witch and her fiendish servant return from the grave and begin a bloody campaign to possess the body of the witch's look-alike descendant. You chose some pretty heavy hitters for your screening entries this time. Why Bava? My gosh, how could we keep Black Sunday off of this list? How could we deprive anyone of missing out on seeing those steel spikes driven into her face? It's definitely one that's fun with an audience, especially if they haven't seen much classic horror. That scene in particular, I really get that feeling where I get to vicariously relive the discovery through them. Because I think a great deal of our audience is really surprised when they take that sledgehammer and pound that onto her face. You feel a gasp and a shudder run through them when they realize 60 years ago they weren't playing around. It's always gratifying to see that light get turned on for horror fans. 
I think the thing I like best about this one is how Mario Bava gets more creepy mileage out of the atmosphere of a set than any other director I know. If an Amazon box shows up this week with an industrial-sized fog machine in it, hashtag blame Bava. <laughs> Very good choice. Now, we are also about to take religion into the stratosphere with my next choice. Agnes of God. No. Maybe just a little too soon for that one. Instead, I chose The Devils from 1971, directed by Ken Russell with Oliver Reed, Vanessa Redgrave, and Gemma Jones. This is a dramatized historical account of the rise and fall of Urbain Grandier, a 17th century Roman Catholic priest executed for witchcraft following the supposed possessions in Loudon, France. Now, this is another of your choices that might not be traditionally thought of as horror, but I think it easily falls under the folk horror umbrella. Did it satisfy the brief for horror for you? Did you expect it to be as political as it was? I really didn't know what to expect. Specifically with these choices, I avoided reading as much as possible about them. I only remembered... What you told me after you saw this, what was it, last year or two years ago? Two years ago, easily now. I believe there was something about a bone and some masturbation, which we don't need to get into at the moment. Let everybody see it. And when you say bone, that is not with quotation marks around it. You are talking about a literal femur. Yes. But I'll let that unfold for the audience. So I didn't know it was going to be so political. I didn't know all of the backstory around it. How dangerous does something have to be for Warner Brothers to essentially confiscate it? Not just confiscate it, but apparently bury it under the vault for the next century. I hope not, but it feels like. I didn't know what a huge part religion was going to play. I know that sounds kind of silly when I say it. But going back to your question about the brief, I do think if you see enough horrific situations and horrific people, this has got to be horror to some extent. There is possession. There is execution. There is the plague. To me, that's horror. I think this might end up being my number one favorite of everything that we watched. It was magnificent. Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed were born somehow to play these characters. It was Oliver Reed's favorite film of his own, by the way. An interesting note, Derek Jarman did the sets, and his direction from Ken Russell was to avoid cliches of period films, and so instead he created this anachronistic, futuristic design. I want to know what these missing frames are in this film, these missing sequences. I believe one was about the rape of an icon of Christ, well, I am with you and Oliver Reed. I feel like this is Ken Russell's greatest achievement, and it is an unqualified masterpiece in my book. But then I'm a big fan of blasphemy, so go figure. <laughs> one of these days, I plan on doing a full regular episode about this one, so I won't say too much here. Suffice it to say that I love it. It speaks to me. I joked on our Facebook group that I was going to make a letterboxed list of films that make you super horny and are simultaneously infuriating, but this might be the only one on that list. The political part of this makes me so angry. It's similar to that feeling I get when I watch Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. That sort of cowardly hypocrisy never fails to upset me. 
I'm much more invested in this than the dryer, though, because I like my martyrs more earthy than saintly. One of these days, I really do hope we get a true uncut version of this so we can see those frames that you're talking about. I really have hope that we will. Well, hold off on that letterbox list until we see Hocus Pocus. <laughs> now, where did we go from here? Well, I've got two back-to-back that couldn't be more different. My first one is my regular choice for the month, and that was The Wicker Man from 1973, directed by Robin Hardy and starring Christopher Lee, Edward Woodward, and Britt Eklund. To find out what we had to say about that folk horror masterpiece, go check out our episode 88. Back to our list, though, was Razorback from 1984, and this is directed by Russell Mulcahy, starring Gregory Harrison for some reason, Archie Whiteley, and Bill Kerr. It's about a wild boar the size of a rhinoceros terrorizing the Australian outback. This one came to us via our friend Andrew Pierce, who is a tireless advocate for all types of Australian cinema and culture, and who runs the excellent website The Curb, which you can find at thecurb.com.au. It's a great resource for anyone interested in Australian film. And this is definitely one of the most Australian films I have ever seen. This movie is bonkers. It starts with a pig so big and strong that it flat out runs straight through, and I do mean through, a house. It steals a page out of the dingo's book, and it takes a baby. This is so hyper-stylized. It's, it's great. It's so much fun. The cinematography is great. They make the smart play of never showing you too much of the titular Razorback. I think of this movie as the place on the Venn diagram where Jaws, the Road Warrior, and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre overlap. I really had fun with this one. I don't know about you. Uh, ultimately, I was disappointed. Really? I had, I think, the highest hopes for this one because you know I love me some gorilla gonna kill ya, substitute whatever animal you want genre. It had such an audacious opening but really, I just wished it continued with the grandfather character played mm-hmm. by Bill Kerr. Because like you said, Gregory Harrison, sorry, is not going to be able to carry the story. It's not entirely his fault. It's the character. Those leads are just hopeless and ineffectual. And it really bothered me that the venal pieces of garbage survived to the end. It was at least in part filmed in Broken Hill. So it really does look great and terrible, if you know what I mean. So you couldn't entertain yourself enough by trying to figure out if Gregory Harrison's character even remembers that the reason he's in Australia in the first place is that his pregnant wife is missing, presumably murdered by a giant pig? Yeah, and thankfully she's out of the way so he can get to his new love interest at the end. Yeah, he doesn't seem all that upset. Like I said, this movie is bananas. So thanks again, Andrew. We really appreciate it. Next, we have your final Argento, is that right? It is, and that was Deep Red from 1975, as you mentioned, directed by Dario Argento, with David Hemmings, Daria Nicolodi again, Gabriella Lavia, Juliana Calandra, Clara Calamai, and Macha Merrill. A pianist begins to investigate a series of murders performed by a mysterious figure wearing black leather gloves. Of course it's Jalo. We're back to having Goblin on the score, so that's a huge high point. Now, I believe you told me this is your second favorite Argento Giallo after Suspiria. Did I get that right? It's my favorite Giallo of his period because I don't think of Suspiria that way. Suspiria is my favorite thing he ever did, and it's so good and so much of its own thing 
that it puts the top Argento spot out of reach for everything else. As runners-up go, though, this is a really strong entry. As you mentioned, Goblin is back, already a huge plus. It just makes me wish they had scored every one of his films. My only quibble with this one is that it probably runs a little longer than necessary, but that's a minor complaint overall. There's one of the creepiest dolls in cinema history in this. That's my single favorite moment. That is the creepiest thing I have seen in a long time. I also really like the cinematic baggage that David Hemmings brings with him to this. And I really like how it makes very clear that with Jalo, there was Argento and then everyone else. It has a complexity and a sense of humor and a nimble camera that the rest of them just never could aspire to. So Deep Red arrived in 75 before Tenebrae in 1982. And because I watched them together in this month, it felt like Deep Red was a bit of a tryout to explore some of those themes of sexuality and dual nature that are a bit more provocative in Tenebrae. I feel like, in general, there were missed opportunities for this to get very outré. There's an ongoing, to me, extremely annoying, bullshit, man-woman banter between David Hemmings and Daria Nicolodi's characters. Again, because I didn't read up on this beforehand, I had assumed that it was maybe even Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi writing those together, but it wasn't. So I kept thinking there was some larger purpose for this. Like when we see the predilections of Carlo's character and his lover. Expecting all of these pieces to fit together in a different way, and it just didn't go that route. But having said that, as you mentioned, that moment with the demon doll ventriloquist dummy is so terrifying, and there are really scary kills here. Deeply unnerving. So even with that quibble, it was a home run. It sounds though like you wouldn't rank it second of his of all time. Would you put The Bird with a Crystal Plumage or Four Flies on Grey Velvet or something like that ahead of this? I think I would put The Bird ahead of this. I did really like Tenebrae. I think I might jump that up there. Well, next we have The New Halloween, a film that I have been waiting for for a long time. Just out this month, directed by David Gordon Green and starring my queen of Halloween for all time, Jamie Lee Curtis, along with Judy Greer, Andy Matichak, Will Patton, Toby Huss, James Jude Courtney, and Nick Castle returning briefly as The Shape. Everyone knows the story here, right? It's been 40 years since Laurie Strode survived being attacked by Michael Myers, and his long shadow has loomed over her entire life since then. A botched prison transfer has freed Michael, and they are on a collision course for a showdown in Haddonfield. As with The Nun, we will avoid spoilers in here, as this is so new... I will just say, some minor quibbles aside, I thought this was a really worthy successor to the original. I applaud the move wholeheartedly of throwing out all of the convoluted and often ridiculous mythology that came after the first film to make this the true sequel. Some of the comic relief bits run too long, but the kid that's being babysat is a budding superstar. I love that kid. What it really boils down to is that Jamie Lee Curtis is killing it here. She sells it 100%. The PTSD, the difficulty of being a survivor, the warmth of the connection with her granddaughter, the regret over what she put her daughter through. It's a really rare chance in this genre, especially with such a high-profile franchise film, 
to get to think about the real world ramifications of events like this and see it portrayed by someone who can make you believe it. She feels like the hero we need. I unequivocally loved this. It feels so incredibly different in a good way from the original, and I have no problem with the original. Maybe it's my age, maybe it's the age of the characters, but everything is just treated differently with a gravity that I didn't feel before. The choice of the victim in the first kill is incredibly startling, and everything that we see afterwards feels so deeply real and sad in a way that I didn't experience in the first film. So I'll just stop there, and I hope that everybody goes to see it. Did you feel as deeply and profoundly moved by your next choice? You know, oddly, I did in some ways. This completely caught me by surprise. And that was The Exorcist Three Legion from 1990, written and directed by William Peter Blatty, adapted from his novel, with George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Scott Wilson, and Brad Dourif. It was also fun to see Zora Lampert in this, who was the lead in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This film takes place years after the events in the first film, The First Exorcist, and we follow the Lieutenant Kinderman character as he's investigating a series of satanic murders in Georgetown. The version that we watched together was compiled from multiple sources, all trying to achieve the director's original vision. This was one that felt like a true horror film, if you know what I mean. Horrific scenarios and actions while real life is taking place. Maybe that's also because, at least in part, it's set in an institution attached to a hospital and everyone seems possessed. George C. Scott, who is never going to be bad at all, one of my all-time favorites, signed up for this role based on the screenplay. He said, it's a horror film and much more, a real drama intricately crafted with offbeat interesting characters, and that's what makes it genuinely frightening. He completely delivers in this. The closest adjective I could come up with was mannered, and that's not in a bad way. It's not necessarily meant to reflect true life or how we interact or speak with each other it seems to achieve something of a much greater stature to me. That's odd, because it didn't strike me that way at all. One of the things I specifically thought about his interactions with Ed Flanders is how much it reminded me that I think people think my normal conversation is mannered. But for me, it's not. That's just how I speak. I like that he doesn't engage in banal platitudes, that his conversations with his friend are a bit of a jousting match sometimes. They demonstrate an intellectual curiosity and a nimbleness that stock characters are not often allowed to have. It felt very real to me. It didn't feel mannered at all. Like you said, you watched Blatty's Legion Cut, and I watched both that and the theatrical version, and they are worlds apart. A lot of great Brad Dourif stuff from Legion is replaced by Jason Miller in the theatrical cut, so there's more of an overt connection to the original film. The studio also shoehorned an exorcism into the theatrical cut. The biggest difference, though, is the finale, which I think everyone should see for themselves to see which they prefer. Ultimately, I prefer the Legion cut myself. It's more coherent in places, it's more incoherent in other places, but it's not as obvious a film as the theatrical cut, and that's obvious not being used as a compliment in this case. As far as the shared bones of both versions go, there's a confession scene that is pretty chilling, 
and a blink-and-you'll-miss-it scare with a nurse that's really great in the hospital? It certainly zeroes in on the nurses and old ladies are the creepiest things ever vibe, actually eventually combining the two into one. We get Scott Wilson, always a welcome face no matter what the genre. Brad Dourif's monologues are really impressive. I wish he was given more to do than play lunatics all the time. I think my favorite part, though, is that there is just so much inexplicable shouting all the time in it, most of it courtesy of George C. Scott. Well, he does work with the dumbest people in the world. (laughs) He gives me hope that I do not have to slip quietly and gracefully into my golden years. Trish Vandeveer does tell a funny story about she and George C. Scott taking an around-the-world cruise at one point, and they weren't speaking to each other soon after it began, and it was all about an argument around baboons. (laughs) So it really is like our life, almost exactly. Yeah, fast forward, whatever. Well, the next choice is my movie night finale, our screening series finale, and that was The Autopsy of Jane Doe from 2016, directed by Andre Overdahl and starring Brian Cox, Olwen Kelly, and Emile Hirsch. It's about a father and son team of coroners who are pulled into a complex mystery while attempting to identify the body of a young woman who was apparently harboring dark secrets. I was pleasantly surprised by this. How about you? It was great, I thought. Such a good choice for movie night. Great scares and a lot to watch and watch unfold and sink your teeth into. I like it most when we have a movie night and it's something that I haven't seen yet. I think the best part is that it shows all of you people what you reasonably will get if you don't announce yourself in a morgue. I hadn't seen it either, and it is not often that we show something on movie night that's an unknown quantity for both of us, but this one, it lived up to its reputation. Structuring the arc of the film around the steps of this ever more baffling autopsy is a great choice, and there is a lot to like about this. It's nice to see a father-son relationship in horror that is warm and affectionate instead of abusive and or absentee. I especially enjoyed that the characters behaved like intelligent, reasonable people would when faced with something inexplicable yet undeniable. It tied into our witch theme in a less overt way than the others, but the reveal of that connection is built patiently in a way that is very satisfying. It's well acted, efficient, and very spooky. It's highly recommended. Okay, next up we have day 28, my birthday, and that gift was Levide from 2011, directed by Alexander Bustillo and Julian Mari. Starring Chloe Coulou, Jeremy Capone, Felix Moati, Catherine Jacob, and Marie-Claude Pietragala. In this, the suggestion of treasure hidden somewhere inside an invalid's once-renowned classical dance academy, now decrepit home, proves to be an irresistible lure to a fiendish trap for a young caregiver and her friends. I ended up liking this quite a bit, too. It has little touches of the original Suspiria. Little touches of the parts of Guillermo del Toro that I like. It has a nice score. The photography is striking right away, and the production design is fantastic. It engages in a couple of well-worn tropes, particularly the haunted house that divides to conquer and the old house-wanted-her-all-along bit, but it does them in ways that put a bit of a new spin on them. What keeps it merely good instead of great, I think, though, is the presence of an outside voice for editorial purposes. They seem to be just slightly too enamored of all of their ideas. 
only just a little, but enough to make a difference. The ending in particular suffers from this, I think. If it had been more vague, more floating away in the corner of your eye, than zoomed in on for a last close-up, that alone would have raised it half a star in my book. When I think of this idea in the hands of someone like Lucille Hadjialilovic, for instance, reining some of that in, this might have been one of the best horror films of the last 20 years. It's still definitely worth a watch. This was a very big highlight of the newer titles as well for me. I really enjoyed it. You mentioned that great visual style. I could be prejudiced because I just love to see the seaside in winter. I was attracted most to this because the characters felt fully formed. So when things start to happen and we get the sense that there's something deeper going on with Lucy, it feels like the foundation has been laid. She doesn't feel like cannon fodder, which I appreciate. She takes actions that felt true to her character. Now, I think my next choice does tick that box for pulling back, and that was Kill List, also from 2011. Directed by Ben Wheatley, also written by Ben Wheatley with Amy Jump and much of the cast. It stars Neil Maskell, Mayanna Burring, Michael Smiley, and Emma Fryer. Nearly a year after a botched job, a hitman takes a new assignment with the promise of a big payoff for three killings. Now, you had prepared me in advance as this was going to take multiple turns. Of course, you didn't tell me what those were going to be. There's enough held back here. Ben Wheatley particularly does not like to use exposition. He would rather leave things mysterious. But none of these things seem to necessarily come out of nowhere as they're unfolding, and each one makes previous conversations and actions make more sense. So that when you get to the end, I understood the steps that got me there. I really also appreciated delving into the family dynamic in this unexpected way, the husband and wife relationships, their motivations. And ultimately, I realized that when we hit stop, I had been clenching my jaw the whole time, which is always the best testament to how tense I find something. Well, the first thing that strikes me about it is how much I like the camera work. So much handheld these days just feels completely unnecessary. It's a trick for the lazy to inject urgency into a story when they can't manifest that either through performance or the writing. This is not like that, and something that you brought up about the cast contributing to the development of the screenplay really brings up the specter of people like Mike Lee. Not that this is that incisive, but in terms of the horror genre, definitely. The real strength of the film, though, for me, is how it gets us to where we're going. Its construction is super subtle, if subtle is a word that we can use about a film in which a man gets a huge number of his broken bones with a hammer, including his skull. And when you read about this, you'll see things like I brought up to you, that there are turns that this takes. It's frequently cited that it is a wild left turn at the end. I think that's only if you're not paying attention. It's more clever than that. It's more of a feeling of... How did we get here from there? It starts as what feels like a domestic drama, becomes a crime film, then turns into a full-blown horror film by the end, but not by veering wildly off course. Looking forward, you can't imagine that this would be the outcome, but if you trace it backward, it all makes perfect sense. Neil Maskell also deserves special mention for how intentionally absent he is. He is hollow. And every time you see his eyes, you know it. He is a long-gone train 
may be only ever present in these moments of violence. Now, what was up next for us? Well, sadly, it's my very last choice for the month. It is Evil of Dracula from 1974. This is the finale of the Bloodthirsty Trilogy, once again directed by Michio Yamamoto and starring Toshio Kurosawa, Mariko Mochizuki, Kuni Tanaka, and Shin Kishida. In this final installment, a teacher assumes a position at a school that is run by a vampire. The middle installment is still my favorite. Nothing revolutionary here, but all in all, it's a very fun trilogy. The thing I can most recommend about this one is that it probably hews the closest to the original Dracula story of all three, and definitely falls in line with Hammer's evolution as well, as this one has increasing gore, nudity, lesbian overtones. When it's a standard vampire story the way these were, instead of a new take, I think what I'm looking for are just moments that distinguish it. What makes it memorable? In this case, it starts at a train depot, so I'm already all in for that. There are the ghastly remnants of a car accident that tell quite a story just by implication. There's a surprising bit of facial surgery. It gives us a little taste of our own medicine, laying the blame for this evil at the feet of a white Western Christian interloper who brought this scourge upon them. And it has the most surprisingly poignant ending of the three. Definitely worth your time if you are a vampire aficionado. I love that opening as well. I like that the scenes here are in a mountainside town. That's really fun to watch. I think my favorite scene was the bloodletting scene. That's the only way I can think of to describe it. My quibble is that the hunky teacher, he reminds me of Bill Bixby, picks the blandest girl to end up with. After all of those fun themes and overtones you talked about, he goes the vanilla route at the end. To be fair, aren't all the other girls Draculas by now? I could, maybe. I would still go with one of them. Okay, what about your big finale? What's your last choice here? It is a pretty big finale. I chose Kwai Dawn from 1965. Finally, we get into an anthology horror film. It was directed by Masaki Kobayashi with Rentaro Mikuni, Keiko Kishi, Kazuo Nakamura, and Kaneman Nakamura. The film is based on a collection of Japanese folk tales. And Kwaidan is a transliteration of Kaidan, which means ghost story. It's got four separate and completely unrelated stories. We have The Black Hair, The Woman of the Snow, Hoichi the Earless, and In a Cup of Tea. I'm so glad we finally did get to a horror anthology after our mini-episode. It's visually beyond stunning masterpiece. It's cited often for its ravishing color. I think ravishing is the best adjective. It feels characterized and haunted by the sound of that biwa throughout. And the use of sound or lack thereof is what I'll remember the most. I also like that it maintains that weird spookiness throughout all the way through to the ending. Personally, I liked the first and second installments the best. How about you? For me, these are all about the visual imagery, so the one I favor the most is the one that I think is the most beautiful, The Woman of the Snow. It is baffling to me that when they edited this down for release, that's the story they cut out. I can't imagine it without it. My second choice would be Hoichi. Obviously, that's the real showstopper. If The Woman of the Snow is a fairy tale, let's say, a little phantasmagoric chamber piece, 
Then it's Hoichi that's the true showcase for all of Kobayashi's skills. If they were going to cut one of these, I almost wish that they had excised Hoichi and fleshed it out to be its own full-length feature. That seems to be the smarter choice to me. I actually got to see this in the theater when I saw it the first time, and it is visually arresting. It is really pure visual poetry, and that was an indelible theater-going experience. P.S. I learned from this film that those Heiki crabs are a real thing. I didn't know that before. Their shells really do look like the ghosts of angry samurai. They are fascinating. And so that's it. 31 Days of Coloween right there. You said that The Devils was probably your favorite. Are there any other major discoveries or general observations that you came away with? I was most pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed the newest titles. That can definitely be kind of a crapshoot, because you know with the older films, they have a reputation for a reason, generally. But you don't always know what you're going to get or what sensibility or artistry you might see with a newer choice. And really, I enjoyed this theme the most out of all of our previous themes. I got to see things I'd never seen before, and they delivered. I think my biggest takeaway is just that the general overall quality was so high across the board. And that may just be in direct comparison to last year, where I didn't feel that way. There were really great discoveries, both old and new, for me. But maybe the thing I think I appreciated most was you giving me the opportunity to return to a couple of films that I will love for all time, and get to experience them anew vicariously through you. It makes me think about how cinema is really alive. It's not just a thing that's sitting on the shelf... You may have fond memories of it and may carry this reputation, but it's a different ballgame altogether when you pull the devil's or eraser head off the shelf, something you may be extremely intimately familiar with, and watch it yet again, and it has the power to deliver over and over. Well, you're welcome, and see you next year. Oh wait, we've got more episodes to do until Halloween 2019? We do, but for the time being, that brings us to the end of episode 89. First and foremost, we have two big thank yous to Barbara Charette and Dean Estes for becoming our newest Patreon supporters. We appreciate that very much and hope that they are enjoying that backlog of bonus episodes. If you would like to see what perks are available, we would love for you to go to patreon.com slash magiclantern and become a patron. There's bonus content, enamel pins, you could get a commentary track that we devised just for you, and lots of other things. The support makes a big difference to the show, and we are grateful for support at any level. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Jason Beamish. Jane Sankner, Tim Lego, Heinz Stuss, John Laubinger, Andy Wolverton, Travis Trudell, Keith Rich, Jeff Duncanson, Brad McDermott, David Lawrence, Matt Gasteyer, Doug McCambridge, Brian Sauer, Hunter Wolf, and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Many thanks to Ken Hess this time around for leaving a nice review of the show on iTunes for us. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. 
And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.